So I'm not minding the fact that it is, well, I think I saw it's going to be about 60 degrees today. It wasn't quite 60 yet. Uh, just the other day we were up in the Poconos dropping kids off up at camp, and uh, it's, it's uh, still a bit snowy and icy up there. So we have rain down here, and uh, I know that when we first moved here to Langhorn, when we, we bought our house, it was just about 10 years ago, and... Um, when we bought our house, we, we found a house that we liked, and we were trying to find something reasonably close here to the church building, and um, one aspect of the house kind of puzzled me a little bit as to what I was going to do with it. Behind our house is a very steep hill, and as I was looking at it, I, I thought, what am I going to do? And so the first year that we lived here, I, that, that hill would just grow a bunch of weeds, and I would weed whack it, but it was at a very steep pitch. And it was my least favorite task to do. So most of the time, it either looked dead from when I would freshly weed whack it, or it would look bad when the weeds would grow up, but it never looked good. And I thought, what do you do with a spot like that? It's just so steep. It looks terrible. And uh, I happened to be watching a show that was about landscaping, and I noticed in the show that they planted some junipers, specifically some blue Pacific junipers. And that section of our property, it faces south. And I was like, all right, it gets good sun. And these apparently grow well in the sun and apparently have a, a great capacity to cover over large areas. So I thought, I'm going to take the chance because I really don't want to have to weed whack this thing for the rest of my life. So I went to a garden center and I bought. So you can buy some of these things already like fully grown, except you have to mortgage your children to be able to do that. So I bought like the small ones, and I was like, all right, in eight years, these things are going to look great. And I bought about 20 of them, and I evenly spaced them all along the hill, and then I bought a whole bunch of pine straw. We don't use that as mulch much here in Pennsylvania, but when you go a little bit uh, south, they uh, use pine straw all over the place. And I thought, this stuff lasts pretty well on a hill. It's easy to spread. So I bought the pine straw. I actually ordered it from a farm in the Carolinas. And they sent it to me. So can you imagine being like the guy that has to deliver 10 bales of pine straw? It was the best. I came home from church the one day and there's 10 bales of pine straw in front of my garage. I was like, he came. All right. So I uh, planted those things, spread the pine straw, and then waited. And year one, it, they didn't grow very much. And they were, again, they were just small. Year two, I started noticing a little more growth. Year three, I started to notice that they were really getting there. And by the fourth year, that back hill is now completely covered, and I don't have to weed whack up there at all. In fact, the most I have to do is a few times during the summer, I go up and I just walk around the edges and get any weeds that have grown up along the edges because the things that have grown or the things that were planted there have just grown exponentially and they've taken over the entire hill. In fact, they're spilling over the back wall now, which I rather enjoy. It's kind of fun to see because I knew those plants when they were just babies. You know, when they were just little, I feel like I raised them. I take less pride in raising my own children than I do in raising those blue Pacific junipers from seedlings, right? Well, this morning, we're going to be talking about the idea of things flourishing, things growing, specifically in relation to our life. And I, I bring that up just because I want to gear our minds toward this idea that the Lord truly does desire that your life and my life flourish in a specific kind of way. And it's the opposite of what many times people tend to think life should look like. 
or life should be like. In fact, it's the opposite of what many people were experiencing in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today from the book of Jeremiah. So we've been looking at the book of Jeremiah for the past group of weeks. Today we're at chapter 23. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 8. And um, if you have your Bibles in front of you, this will be on page 650. But Jeremiah chapter 23, starting with verse 1, this is what it says, and, and you'll see this idea as we ask the question, you know, who has the power to make your life flourish? Who can actually accomplish this? And notice the contrast in the first four verses and then the second four verses as we read this now. So Jeremiah 23, verse 1, this is how it starts. It says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them then they shall dwell in their own land. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together today. And as we look at this portion of Scripture, Lord, we pray that we would understand more about who you are and how you operate in the lives of, of those who trust in you. We pray, Lord, that we would recognize that you're the one who has the power. You're the one who has the capacity to make our lives flourish in the kind of way that you speak about here, this idea of, of a life being fruitful in multiple ways. And so, Lord, we pray that we would take the lessons from this portion of Scripture, that by your grace, that even now you would help us to apply these things to our lives, and that you would be reflected in all the things that we say, all the things that we do, uh, and ultimately in all the ways that, that we interact with one another. We pray, Lord, that we would reflect your heart in those interactions, and that we would show that we're motivated by what motivates you. So, Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that you'd speak it to our hearts now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, we had cable TV for a little while, and then we didn't have it for a long while. So, for the majority of when I was growing up, we really only had several channels. If, I, if I'm remembering correctly, we mostly had four channels, and then Fox started becoming a broadcast network. So it was exciting because we went from having ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS to all of a sudden this new network, Fox. So we had five channels, 
And at best, um, we would get several of them to come in clear uh, because we had to use the over-the-air antenna to do that. And I remember growing up, and this is still true of me now, but it was true of me then also, I, I was not somebody who, no matter what my day looked like, no matter if I had a million things I had to do during the course of that day, or if it was kind of a light day, regardless of whatever happened, my mind doesn't immediately turn off when my head hits the pillow, and probably some of you can identify with that. I know Josh and I have talked about that from time to time, how, you know, it's like, how do you get your mind to quiet down so you could actually go to sleep? So sometimes I have a difficult time doing that, even when I'm tired and I just find myself staying awake. And so I remember even when I was growing up, that was an issue. And so frequently I would find myself watching whatever came on those five channels late at night. So PBS always had British sitcoms. So I learned a lot about British humor uh, during that period of time. But I also noticed another pattern when you're watching TV late at night during that particular era. It seemed that there was always some sort of guru uh, or, or some sort of like teacher or some sort of infomercial that promised to make your life better. But the only advertising spot they could afford somehow was 2 a.m. on a Tuesday, right? You know, but they have, just like somehow they've made their own lives better, they would promise that they were going to make your life better. So some of the shows would focus on your finances, and they would tell you how you were going to become, you know, financially fit through the system that, you know, that they recommended or by selling certain products or whatever it may be. Others would focus on your health. And so you'd see all sorts of health recommendations and things like that. There are also programs that would come on that would focus on spiritual issues. And to be perfectly honest, most of these shows were garbage. Most of them were just an absolute joke that I was only watching just for the humor of it. In fact, I'm grateful when I think back to it that I was able to see through these thinly veiled you know, claims and things of that uh, nature, even at a young age. But I remember even at that season of my life, noticing people, some people who are plenty older than me, falling for some of the pitches of these late night gurus. Because I think things probably got to a spot where things felt so desperate that it's like, all right, that person seems rather confident in what they're saying, therefore, maybe we ought to implement the things that this infomercial is saying we ought to implement. And so now and then you'd come across people who actually bought into the things that were being recommended on these shows. They were at least moderately convinced by some of the things that they were hearing spoken about. And they were convinced that their life was somehow going to flourish as a result. And when you look at this portion of Scripture, we're offered a contrast to that. The promises that we find in Scripture go much, much deeper than the vain promises of men. In God's Word, we learn that there actually is one leader who actually does have the power to make our lives flourish in every healthy way. And not surprisingly, for those of us who call ourselves believers in Jesus Christ, it's Him. It's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one that's spoken of prophetically here in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 23. And as we look at these things that are prophetically spoken of in regard to Jesus, we're also given some cautions. We're given some um, contrasting glimpses of what bad leadership looks like, almost as a warning to us and a warning to those who might lead poorly so that we understand what God's loving heart actually desires for His people. So there's good leadership here spoken of in Christ, 
And there's poor leadership spoken of here, and we'll see that contrast. And one of the things that were shown when we look at the opening verses of this passage is this idea of being wary of leaders who steer people away from the Lord. So we're, you know, we're encouraged basically by virtue of what we read here to be cautious of people who actually have a habit or who have a pattern of steering people away from the Lord instead of encouraging people to draw near to the Lord. Let me reread the opening verses that we just read a few moments ago. But this is what it says. And so the Lord's speaking through Jeremiah, and he speaks some words of caution here and words of warning. And he says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And it's with an exclamation point that we see this here. You know, the idea is that there's emphasis. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. So we see the Lord causing their lives to flourish. And he says, and I will, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So as this passage of Scripture opens up from Jeremiah chapter 23, you have this passage beginning by speaking about the governmental leadership in the southern kingdom of Israel. This is Judah, the two tribes of you know Judah and Benjamin. It's referred to as Judah in Scripture, that southern kingdom. And you have governmental leadership that wasn't doing a very good job in their era. And oftentimes in Scripture, leaders are spoken of with a term that's used here in this passage. They're spoken of as being shepherds. And that was an analogy that the people of that time would have readily understood because there are plenty of people that tended and cared for sheep that they would oftentimes visit. And many of the people even reading these portions of Scripture or hearing these things, I should say probably, in the context that they were living in, were shepherds themselves and would have understood these things because shepherds were people who would do things like they would live among, they would feed, they would care for, they would lead their sheep. They were intricately involved with the well-being of those that they were trying to care for. The well-being of their sheep, it was highly correlated to the kind of care and the kind of provision that these shepherds would offer. And in many respects, we're shown here some parallels to the well-being of the people of Judah and the kind of lives that they lived under the care and under the leadership and under the influence of their governmental rulers who were leading them at this time. And this portion of Scripture opens up with a warning from the Lord to these governmental leaders. He had a warning for the leaders of Judah. And he pointed out to them through Jeremiah that he was able to observe and was in fact observing the nature of their poor leadership. He saw that in fact that their actions were scattering the people and that their actions were destroying the people. So instead of making investments in the lives of the people, They were destroying them. Instead of caring for the people, instead of working toward allowing them to dwell in safety, you have these governmental leaders in Judah who were primarily seeking their own self-interests. And as a result, the hearts of the people of Judah were becoming quite fearful because there were all sorts of consequences that came with this. And so as the Lord looked at this, as the Lord observed this with His compassion and with His care and with His concern, He promised that he was going to do something about this one day, and that a day was going to come 
when the people of Judah would be privileged to experience good leadership, righteous leadership. Now, as I mentioned just a moment ago, these verses are primarily dealing with political leadership in that particular context. But the issues that are being spoken of here, the things that are being addressed in this passage of Scripture, these things relate to spiritual leadership as well, even spiritual leadership during our time. In some of my secondary ministry rules, I see issues like this that crop up regularly. For the past six months, I've had the privilege, uh, in addition to my ministry here to our church, I also direct a mission board that's focused on church planting and church revitalization. And so I have the responsibility of overseeing some of these things, and I called a pastor who uh, looks after a, a network of churches, a group of churches in his region. I called him this past week just to check on him, see how he was doing, and to see how some of the churches in his region were doing and how everything was going. And he said, some are doing well, some aren't doing some, so well, and some are doing literally terrible. And he said, I have two churches in particular that I'm primarily concerned about. And I said, all right, tell me what's going on there. And he said, well, the one church has lost half its congregation this past year. And I was like, wow. I was like, okay, what's going on? He said, I'm not 100% certain because every time I call to talk to the pastor there, he always seems like he's in a rush to get off the phone as quickly as possible. And he said, but this is what bugs me. Every time I call him, I could always hear the TV playing in the background. He's like, so what I think is actually happening is when I call him during working hours, I'm interrupting his TV shows. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah. He's like, and he's like, and the church is dying. Like, it's absolutely dying. And every time, he doesn't even have the foresight to turn the TV off when I call. And I was like, oh boy. And I said, well, all right, well, what's the other one? He said, well, the other one's experiencing some pretty steep decline as well. And I said, well, what do you think the issue is there? And one of the things that's an issue there is he said that the pastor there keeps posting offensive things online, and then as people try and speak words of wisdom and words of caution to him, he belittles them. And so over time, what's happening is more and more and more people are just leaving. They're just going. They don't want that kind of leadership. They don't want that kind of shepherding in their particular spiritual context. And as I was thinking about that context, you know, in both of those contexts, you have issues where people are not valuing the role that the Lord's given them to shepherd other lives. If the Lord ever puts you in a spot where you have direct influence over other people's lives, particularly their relationship with Him, never minimize that. If you're teaching a class here at the church and, it, and it's just like a few little kids, don't minimize it in your mind because it is a big deal. The Lord's using you in a foundational way in their spiritual growth early in their lives. If you teach at camp, if you're ever a guest speaker someplace, if the Lord entrusts children or grandchildren to you, and you have the power to influence them in their walk with the Lord, never minimize those kind of experiences. When I look at what my friend told me the other day about issues that are happening in both of those churches, this is what I thought in my mind, particularly as I'm preparing for today, and I'm, I'm, I, it fresh in my mind is a portion of Scripture that starts off that says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. I'm like, oh my goodness, I would not want to be on that side of the conversation if the Lord entrusted to me a stewardship, and instead of valuing the stewardship, 
I was more concerned with daytime TV. I don't know if you've ever watched daytime TV. There's nothing edifying on daytime TV. It's like, what, like, I keep thinking, it's like, is he watching soaps? Like, what is this guy watching? Like, is he watching soap operas? Is he more concerned with the drama of the soap operas that he wants? I don't know if he's watching soap operas. But in my mind, I'm like, what's on during the day that you're watching? And, it's, and, and I, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I suspect that in one way or another, the Lord's going to deal with those contexts. That he's going to look at the people that should be shepherded well by those that have been entrusted with the responsibility to do it, that seem to be abdicating their responsibilities. When I look at a portion of Scripture like this, what it tells me is that this stuff doesn't escape the Lord's sight. This stuff doesn't escape the Lord's view. He's seeing this. He cares about it. It actually matters to him. And people need to recognize that God is not some God at a distance who is uninvolved with our day-to-day lives. He actually cares for the well-being of his people. And so in Judah, you have this issue where the leaders are basically abdicating their role of leadership, choosing to be too inwardly focused in the sense that they're focused on whatever they covet, whatever they want, regardless of how it impacts the people that they're called to lead, instead of being sacrificial people who serve others for the glory of the Lord. Good, godly leadership is sacrificial. It's focused on service. It doesn't make constant demands about its own preferences and its own benefits. It looks after the kind of people that the Lord has entrusted to it. And in this, in this context of, of what was taking place in Judah, you have the political leaders abdicating their roles, and the people were living in fear. And the people were experiencing a lot of problems in their particular context as they were dealing with things like the threat of invasion, then actual invasion, then rampant immorality, and many of the people were then going in with their lives in that very direction. And here, when you look at the way this scripture opens up, effectively it's telling us, be wary of leaders like that. Be cautious when it comes to leaders like that. Don't readily allow people who steer people away from the Lord to have influence in your own life. Don't let it happen. And here in this particular context, you have the Lord saying, I'm going to deal with this, and I'm going to offer something better for my people. And as we look at how this scripture unfolds, it begins to tell us what this is going to look like. And it begins to give us a picture of the righteous leadership of Jesus Christ And it invites us to be people who rejoice in that kind of leadership, the righteous leadership of Christ, as it's spoken of in this passage here. Jump to verses 5 and 6. This is the way it's phrased here. It says, Behold, the days are coming. So now this is prophetically, looking into the future, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Judah. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Let's pause there for just a second. If you've never taken the time to read the Bible cover to cover, I would strongly encourage you to do so, even if you take a long time to do it. You don't have to do it in a year. You don't have to do it in a month. You could do it over the course of several years if that's something that works best with your your reading preferences. But if you've never read it cover to cover, I'd strongly encourage you to do it because what you'll notice, if you stick with it long enough, you'll be fascinated by the things that you'll start to learn. 
because you'll start to notice some repeating patterns in the Scriptures. And you'll start noticing some direct references and subtle hints about God's future plans. And all these details start to unfold and they start to come together and you begin to see things that really have a fascinating aspect to them. And as you see God's plans being discussed, you start to realize these are things that have a direct impact on me. These aren't just nebulous generalities that are being spoken of in Scripture. These are things that have a direct impact on my life and on my children and on my grandchildren and those that come after us. You see, when you start to read through the Old Testament, that the Scriptures begin speaking right away of an individual who's going to come, who's going to lead right, who's going to be the kind of leader that our hearts crave. You see this in the earliest chapters of Genesis, and it continues to unfold through the law, through the history, through the poetry, through the prophecy, and then we get to the Gospels, and there Jesus Christ shows up. Adam was told of this future leader. Abraham was told of this future leader. Moses was told about him. Joshua was told about him. David was told about him. In fact, David was also told that this leader, this future king, was going to be a descendant from his own lineage. This future leader was going to be a king who would one day sit on David's throne. This is something that was being revealed through Jeremiah as the Lord speaks through him and talks about the fact that he's going to raise up for David a righteous branch. That's the way the Scripture speaks of it here. A righteous branch. And he says this righteous branch is going to do things like this. He's going to reign as king. He's going to deal wisely. He's going to execute justice. He's going to foster righteousness. He's going to foster salvation and security for his people. He's going to do all of these things. And again, these are all references to Jesus Christ. These are, all, these are all promises that find their ultimate fulfillment after Christ's second coming. That's what we're looking forward to. The people living during this era were likewise looking forward to that, but they didn't realize that Christ was coming one time and then coming a second time. But they were looking forward to Christ's coming just like the Lord has allowed us to be people who have the privilege to look forward to His coming again. And you have these references here in Jeremiah speaking about that time, after Christ's second coming. So as the people of Judah were hearing this, as they're meditating on these thoughts, as they're thinking about these things, at the time this was taking place, uh, they were presently dealing with the ungodly leadership of a king whose name was, was King Jehoiachin. Now during Jeremiah's time, he, I think it was about 42 years that Jeremiah was a prophet serving the people of Judah. And during that time, there were multiple kings that ascended to the throne, or one that was actually appointed to the throne. There were multiple kings during that time, and during the time of him writing Jeremiah chapter 23, King Jehoiachin uh, was leading at the time. And there were other leaders that were serving during that time as well, under the king. But the people, as they were experiencing the leadership of Jehoiachin and some of the sub-leaders that were leading under him, they were living in fear of their surrounding nations. I think we take this for granted. But think about this for just a second. You probably heard the news last month about that false alarm of a missile attack in Hawaii. Did you hear about that? Did you see how people reacted to it? I mean, they were told this is not a drill. And it was something that we're not used to as Americans. 
And so people were panicking. People were hiding in things like drainage ditches and all sorts of things, any place they could get shelter. Although I did see one video of one guy who was like, well, he was on the golf course when he got the notification on his phone that, that Hawaii was about to blow up. And he's like, well, I, I don't know how to escape a, a missile blast here in Hawaii, so I'm just going to finish my game. He just like, just continued golfing. He's like, I don't know. I like golf. It's probably my favorite way to die, I guess. And so literally he thought, he's like, I think I'm, I think I'm on the way out, but let's see how far I get in this game before I blow up. Good for him. You know, it's like, I I actually, to a, to a degree found that amusing because like, what, what can I do? It's like, stop missile, stop, you know, like you can't do anything about it. But it was such a a freaky event for the people of Hawaii because they're like, what do you do when you discover you're under attack? Thankfully, it was a false alarm. But again, we know our history, right? Did Hawaii experience attack not that long ago? From a historical standpoint, yes, that's pretty fresh information still in Hawaii. They're like, it's happened here before. And apparently it's going to happen right now, they thought. And then a half hour later, it took a half hour them to finally get the information. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Someone pushed a wrong button. Could you imagine? It's like, someone did, it's like, you had one job. Push the right button. And if you push the wrong button, tell your boss before you panic an entire state, right? Fix it quick. Don't let it linger. But for a half hour, people were freaking out. Imagine if you got to spend your whole life fearful of the invasion of a country that it had set that had set itself against you as as your enemy. And imagine if you had already seen your northern neighbors Israel invaded by another country. So you know it very well can happen. Israel, the people of Israel were taken captive by Assyria. They were invaded by Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah, what's happening here you have you have Babylon that's that's now invading their land, taking their people captive. We see this unfold during Jeremiah's time. And they were told during Jeremiah's time that they were going to be in captivity for 70 years. In fact, some people just stayed there even after the captivity. They just stayed. They just made it their permanent home. But can you imagine being someone who had to live in fear of that happening at any given moment? Imagine if that was our reality right now. I don't think, I don't, I'll just speak for myself. I don't really live in fear of a neighboring nation taking us on or doing something like that. That's not what our relationship is like with our northern or southern neighbors. We're not militarily aggressive with the nations that are attached to us geographically. You know, growing up, I was a little afraid of the fact that the Soviet Union might send a bomb over here, but then I saw Rocky IV and he initiated peace between us and the Russians, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, just watch the end of the movie. He fixed it. So after that, I was fine. Um, But no, I remember as a child, you know, we would talk about that, and I remember I'd watch the news, and they were like, a missile test was done over the, the ocean where two missiles collided, and I thought, I wonder if like a nuclear bomb is gonna be sent over here. I don't know, you know? And so you had that stuff in the back of your mind. But this is what the people of Judah lived with continually. It was their reality. It wasn't just a maybe. It wasn't just a theory. They were watching it happen. They were living in that kind of fear. And they longed for the kind of leadership that they once had. The kind of prominence that they once had as a nation. Back when, like, when David was ruling things. When David was around. He was a good king. 
And they heard about that, and David was written about, and they thought, man, wouldn't it be great if we had a king like David again? You think that day is ever going to come? You think we'll ever have good leadership again? Someone like David. And here you have Jeremiah as the Lord's giving him these words. In this prophecy, he's revealing to them, in the midst of their fear of invasion and conquer and all of the things that they were dealing with, he reveals to them that another David was coming. In fact, one greater than the David that they, that they typically spoke about. He reveals to them, as, as God reveals this through Jeremiah, that the day is going to come when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, the one that David himself worshipped, was going to come and actually lead the people with justice and righteousness. In fact, Christ himself revealed that he was the fulfillment of these particular prophecies. David spoke about this in Psalm 110. Let me show you this re, uh, real quick. David said this. He made this comment in Psalm 110. So this is sometime earlier, obviously, than what Jeremiah is speaking about. But David says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now think about that statement for a second. The Lord says to my Lord. What does that mean? The Lord says to my Lord. Yahweh says to my Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's like, what's David talking about in this passage? Jesus clarifies it. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 and following, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, and keep in mind, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they always like to quiz Jesus. They always like to quiz him, trying to trip him up somehow. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So you have Jesus quoting from Psalm 110. And Jesus then says, if, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now Jesus knows the answer. It's like, wink, wink, it's me. But he's asking these supposed know-it-alls, right? And he's saying, have you ever thought about Psalm 110? If David's calling this guy Lord, how is he also his son? Who calls their son Lord? I won't be, right? It's like, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Like, I don't know where he's going with this stuff. I don't know. I don't know. He's making us think about things we haven't thought about before. And Jesus reveals that ultimately he's the fulfillment of this. He's the leader. He's the one that David worshipped. He's the one that David was, was referencing. And here you have Jeremiah speaking of Jesus, and he reveals that the leader who would be the one who was to come, this righteous branch, or this branch of David, right? He says he's going to be called by a name. Now, Scripture reveals a lot of different ways that the Lord is referenced, a lot of different names of God. That, and, and really, what, you know, when it's talking about these things, it's showing us some aspect about God's character. And, and here Jeremiah reveals, as the Lord gives him the words to say, that the one who is to come, Jesus Christ, is going to be referred to, he's going to be called, the Lord is our 
righteousness. In Hebrew, this would be Jehovah Tzidkenu. The Lord is our righteousness. This is a fascinating title to think about when we reflect upon who Jesus is and what he does in our, in our lives, because many people, even those who profess belief in God, spend their lives making a mistake on this very point. And what I mean by that is this. A lot of us can mistakenly start to believe that we have to earn the favor of God through our own virtue or through our own righteousness. But that's a mindset that doesn't really work. It doesn't work at all. Because we would need to be perfectly virtuous. Or we would need to be perfectly righteous to be able to stand before our holy God on our own. Our righteousness would need to match His for us to have a standing before Him. And likewise, if you, if you do actually become convinced that you have to, to earn the love of God, or even that you have the capacity to earn the love or favor of God, what ends up happening to people that become convinced of that and actually try to practice that out is, beca- is you become smug, you become judgmental, you start to become a self-righteous individual who turns people away from walking with Christ instead of encouraging people to walk with Christ. But on the contrary, when you look at what Jeremiah says here, when you look elsewhere in Scripture, the Scripture tells us that Jesus is our righteousness. And here you have Jeremiah saying, that's who, that's this righteous branch that's going to come, this king who is to come, he's going to be called the Lord our righteousness, or the Lord is our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's the scripture telling us? Don't be somebody that boasts about your own righteousness. You know, I I know somebody, I know somebody who said, they literally said this, that they had made it 19 years without willfully sinning. That is a great record. I don't think she was counting the lie she was telling us when she said she had made it 19 years without willfully sinning. Does anyone make it 19 hours or 19 minutes without willfully sinning? You'd beat my record if you did. And so what happened? She became convinced that her own virtue could earn the favor of God. And it's like, yeah, if you just don't count everything that you do say and think, you can tell yourself, that, um, that somehow you can make it 19 years without willfully sinning. You just have to forget everything you've actually done, said, or thought. Scripture says, for, you know, I'll make this personal to me. I am not my own righteousness. John Stonge is not John Stonge's own righteousness. Andrea Stonge, very beautiful and lovely person, very kind, a much better person than I am. Still, Andrea Stonge is not Andrea Stonge's own righteousness. Who is our righteousness? Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. The Lord is our righteousness. Any righteousness that you have in your life or I have in my life didn't come because we earned it or deserved it. It was given to us as a gift the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ. And now you and I, through Jesus, can stand before God the Father, clothed in His righteousness, actually allowed to walk into the presence of His holiness without being completely obliterated because Jesus has given us His righteousness as a gift, not as something that we earn because if we earned it, we'd be boastful. If I could actually earn righteousness like that, I would have a reason to boast, wouldn't I? 
or you would have a reason to boast, but we can't boast because we didn't earn it. We got it as a gift. The Lord looked at us and he said, you don't deserve this in any way. You haven't made it 19 seconds yet without sinning. I'm giving you my righteousness as a gift through faith, by grace through faith. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Him. We boast in who Jesus is and what He's done in our life, the goodness that He has shown us, because He is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. One other thing that this scripture brings out that I want us to notice as Jeremiah finishes up the section we're looking at today, and he basically tells us this, that if you're in Christ, your best days are not behind you. I want to finish up with this this morning. This is what he says in verses 7 and 8. He says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Right? So they're looking back to the past. He says, But as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Has everyone had a good week? Emotionally speaking, it's been a good emotional week. I would say overall, it's been a very good emotional week for me. I hope it's been a good emotional week for you too. There is a reason I'm wearing this color shirt today. I'm still celebratory. I'm still very happy about something. Now I know not everybody's into football yet. We're going to work on that with you. But prior to last Sunday, what did every longtime fan of the Philadelphia Eagles say when someone would mention the fact that our favorite team had never won the Super Bowl. What would we say? Typically, we'd get defensive and we would say something like this. It's like, listen, championships began before the Super Bowl era, right? We're like, don't forget about 1948 and 49 and 1960. We won the NFL championship. We're a long-lasting franchise. We have some championships. But deep down, what did we really mean? I just want to win the Super Bowl. Like, just one time in my life, we'd see them win the Super Bowl. That's what was really going on on the inside. And now, a nice thing has happened for Eagles fans. We don't have to look back to the past. We don't have to keep talking about 49 or 48 or 1960. We don't have to talk about that. We can still talk about it, but we don't have to. Because right now, mere days ago, and for the next year, our favorite team is world champions. That kind of makes you feel good when you're an Eagles fan. You're talking about now. You're not talking about in the past. It feels real good. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you a little secret that, that many of you probably already know. Eagles fans look at the current team and we're like, well, that guy's staying. That guy's staying. We have two good quarterbacks, maybe three. And that guy's staying. Our coach is doing a good job. There's a lot of optimism. Deep down, whether we admit it out loud or not, we kind of think that there's a few more of these championships coming. So we're optimistic. We're celebrating right now. We're optimistic about the future. And what, we're, what we've at least temporarily been paused from doing is spending a lot of time rehashing 1948, 1949, and 1960. Because there's now a 2018 to talk about. Imagine being the people of Judah during Jeremiah's time. I think to the majority of these people, it looked to them like their best days were behind them. Right? Their best days were behind them. They were being invaded. They were being held captive at this point by foreign nations. Their leaders were corrupt. 
They longed for the kind of experiences that their forefathers enjoyed hundreds of years earlier when the Lord would, would, you know, when he raised up Moses to lead them out of Egypt and toward the promised land. And then Joshua led them into the promised land and gave them, you know, they were given all these victories in battle and the people looked at this and they thought about David and the time of David and the time of Solomon and all of these things. And they looked forward to that and they celebrated their past. But in these verses, the Lord was making it clear to them that their best days weren't in the past. Their best days were still ahead of them. The day was coming when they were no longer going to need to rehash the events of the past for a morale boost because there was more in store. And I think that there is a very important correlation to how the Lord is working in our lives as well that we should consider when we look at a passage like this. Because if you have come to the spot where you have received Jesus Christ, where you have trusted in Christ and truly received His righteousness, His gift of salvation through faith in Him, your best days are not behind you. Jesus is present with you today. And He's promised you a future that is unchangeable and incorruptible. And I think it's healthy for our minds to dwell on that fact more than we sometimes do. I can tell you just recently, I found myself a little discouraged one day, not over major things, but enough that it was making me feel discouraged. And as I mentioned, I, I'm not usually, I'm usually the last person that falls asleep in my house. And I remember the, the night, you know, that I was kind of feeling a little down. I was, uh, I thought, well, I'm also thirsty. And so I went to the kitchen and I got a glass of water. And then I went over by the sink and I just kind of leaned against the sink and I was sipping that water and just kind of thinking through my day and thinking about what was discouraging me and not really feeling all that good about it. And then I kind of paused for a second and I thought, you know what? Instead of dwelling on this too much, I think the best thing I can do is finish this water, go to sleep, wake up fresh, and start the new day. Not dwell on this, just drink the water, go to bed, wake up, tomorrow's a new day, get a good night's sleep, start fresh, because every trial, and I remember thinking this in the moment, it's like every trial and every discouragement that I've ever faced ever in my life, whether they're little things or big things, they've all eventually passed every single one of them, the little ones and the big ones. They've all eventually passed. And no trial is going to seem all that consequential to me when I'm forever surrounded by Christ's glory. And that's the future that he's promised me as one who trusts in him. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. It says, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. If you are in Jesus Christ, meaning if you trust in Jesus Christ and you are in His family, your best days are not behind you. They are not ancient history. They are not behind you. He has the power to make your life flourish. And in fact, He promises to do that very thing. Your eternal life is not something that is distant. It is not something that is remote. It's actually already begun because Christ lives within you. His power is at work within us. He is present with us daily. And he's purposely told us of the kind of future that He has guaranteed for everyone who believes in Him because it encourages our hearts now and it helps us to be eagerly patient while we await His guaranteed return. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the things that you reveal to us in this portion of Scripture today. Lord, we recognize that you're the one who has the power to make our lives flourish. We don't, we don't have that power. That's not something that we can conjure up. That's something that ultimately only comes from you. You can accomplish those things in our lives, and you absolutely do. And we thank you, Lord, for all the things that you hold out for us that are yet future. Things that you didn't even need to tell us about. There was no requirement that you reveal these things to us, but you told us about these things for your glory and for our benefit. So here we are walking by faith, praising you for things that we haven't even seen yet, while at the same time being grateful to you for the things that we've already experienced. Lord, we're grateful that in the midst of a book like we've been studying here, as we've been going through Jeremiah, and it's obviously the kind of book that uh, it deals with all sorts of sensitive topics, and it deals with things that are lovingly confrontational, and there's all of that. But then there's also chapters like this where we look at people that seem like they were getting away with causing misery for others, being confronted. And then the people of Judah and Israel, and likewise those of us who trust in your son Jesus Christ, being encouraged by the promise of what you hold out yet future for us. Your Son, Jesus Christ, one with you, is going to come to this earth again and rule and reign on the throne of David. And your word tells us that we're going to be the beneficiaries of his righteous reign, of his rule, of his benevolence, of his goodness to us. Again, Lord, we don't deserve these things, so we can't boast about ourselves and how good we were to get them. None of these things are things that we earned from you. It's just a matter of your grace and your goodness that you lovingly bestowed upon us. You created us in your image. You love us. You care about us. You offer us the alternative to walking our own way. You give us the privilege to be part of your family instead of living presently as your enemies and eternally as your enemies. You invite us in. You let us come into your presence. You tell us now that we've been given the gift of the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we could actually come before you boldly, which is amazing when we consider the nature of your holiness, but you tell us to come right into your presence boldly. So we do so now, grateful that you allow us in, grateful that you love us, grateful that you're present with us. And we pray, Lord, that in... In regard to our day-to-day lives, we would be mindful of the fact that whatever we feel stuck in right now is really just a momentary issue. Sometimes these things feel weighty and permanent, and it doesn't minimize their pain, and it doesn't minimize the lessons you want to teach us through our trials, but at the same time, Lord, you've given us hope beyond them. So thank you, Lord, for revealing to us that our best days are not behind us, and if we're going through a good stretch right now, our best days aren't even right now. There's even better in store for those who are part of your family through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to rejoice in that fact today, Lord. If something comes our way today, this week, sometime in the near future in our life, whatever it may be that we experience, bring our minds back to the teaching of your word, to the things that you've made clear to us as we've studied it together. We're just thankful, Lord, for what you've shown us. Speak to us today. Help us to walk with you faithfully. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.